couple of other housekeeping items I forgot to mention are if you are used to using tithe envelopes or offering envelopes for giving, those are available at the table in the back of the sanctuary, and there are some available on the table as you come in. And so in future weeks, if you want to grab those as you come in, there aren't slots in the backs of the seats like there were in the pews for us to keep those. And so you'll have to grab those as you come in, and you can always put the prayer cards in the offering box or give them to myself or, uh, or Mr. Bill or one of the other staff members, and we'll make sure that we get those prayer cards submitted and, and uh, get them to the appropriate place so we can pray for you. I need your help with something. Uh, I told Andrea I was going to do this. I don't think she believed me, but she's going to find out otherwise. Um, today is Andrea and my anniversary. We've been married 18 years. We were not 14 when we got married, I assure you. And she left me. She left me today for a teacher's conference in Pennsylvania. And so uh, um, I need you when she gets back to tease her. I've been teasing her all week about that. She knows I'm just joking, but I need you to just kind of rub it in with me, okay? That she left me on our anniversary. We have other plans already. We're, we're making other plans. But uh, I just wanted you to, to help me with that because she didn't think I'd do it. And I did. I just did. So you can help me with that. All right, today we're concluding our series through the book of the prophet Haggai, which we've been calling Consider Your Ways. And we've looked at priorities uh, for keeping God first in our lives. And we've learned about defeating discouragement, how to be blessed by walking in lives of holiness. And today we're going to close this series by talking about one more way to consider your ways, and that is ensuring that you have a right perspective on life. See, everybody attempts to make sense of their lives. I think it's a, a psychological necessity. We try to create a kind of cohesive meaning for ourselves and the events that happen to us. And it's the lens through which we view life, we interpret the events of life. I, I believe that we have to in order to be sane. And we create a worldview through which we assign meaning. We try to fit people and the circumstances of our lives into this overarching worldview, this narrative that we create. And these worldviews, they're not incidental. They're not no big deal. They're actually very important, and they're not easily changed. You don't just decide one day, I think I'm going to do something different with my worldview. In fact, most of the time, we're not even aware of them. They're just running in the background about uh, the way that we assume things are. And that's why it makes them so powerful. And even when we're not conscious of it, we're interpreting events through an unseen lens that colors our perspective on life. We interpret life according to our highest priorities, our values, uh, money, family, friends, reputation, power, sensuality, usually some combination of these things. And I assume that most of us here believe that there's some real objective narrative, some real story, some real meaning to life. Life isn't just a happy or maybe sometimes unhappy set of coincidences, but even Christians can have a skewed perspective of life, a skewed lens through which we look. Or we can be tempted to take our focus off of Christ and put it onto something else, and we can be... We can be tempted to think about how rampant evil is in the world and be scared of taking our eyes off of Jesus as a result. And when we take our eyes off of Christ, we get discouraged easily. We saw several weeks ago that discouragement is no small thing. Because when we're discouraged, we fail to perceive God's work in our lives, and we fail to persevere in doing his work, and we're also susceptible to temptation and sin when we're discouraged. And that's why the Bible contains so much encouragement for us as Christians to persevere. But perseverance requires vision. 
No one perseveres through hardship if they don't see the value of going through that hardship and what's on the other side of it. They might just give up and avoid that hardship altogether. No one pushes through trials, unexpected circumstances, and difficulties if they don't see what's at the finish line beyond those things. And this is where prophecy like that from Haggai is so helpful for our lives as believers. You see, prophets, you might not realize this, but prophets were kind of like the pirates of the Old Testament. I don't know if you knew that, but they were kind of like pirates. They had one of these that they could view life through, and they would lift up these telescope or these telescopic lenses, and they would look. And yes, they would look into the future, but their prophecy was not just about the future. It was about seeing, perceiving what God was going to do so that people could be encouraged and live lives of perseverance in the present. And so no, prophets weren't exact like pirates. They didn't rob from people and steal, or they weren't even sailors. But they did have a telescopic lens through which they interpreted the events of life to help God's people understand and see what was going on. Their prophecy was telescopic in nature. And all of the details of how they were going to get from where they were to what God had showed them were not clear. In fact, much like our own lives, we see the, the, the vision of, of the future that the scripture teaches us, and yet we don't see how am I going to get there. What are the circumstances along the way? If the prophets saw something very similar, what does it look like down the road that can enable us to persevere? And so I want to read with you the last few verses of Haggai, and then I want to show you what I mean. It says this in Haggai 2, 20 to 23. It says, the word of the Lord came to a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, by way of reminder, Zerubbabel was one of the Jewish leaders responsible for rebuilding the temple after a remnant returned from exile in Persia. Things had not gone well for this group of people. They had quickly become discouraged with the work of God, and no work had been done on the temple for about 15 years. But God sent the prophet Haggai to confront them, to call them to repentance, and to challenge them to trust him put him first, and start the work of rebuilding the temple again. The Jews were struggling. They were struggling with drought and a lack of resources. Their enemies were still opposed to rebuilding. And Zerubbabel must have felt like he was in an impossible situation as a leader. He was trying to obey God, do what God said, and trying to manage the expectations of the people who were discouraged all at the same time. And so he was dealing with many of the things that we so often deal with, and that's why God sends him a reminder about how to look at life, about worldview. And it may not seem like much to us as we read these few verses, just a few random historical details, but there is a lot here. It's not just an odd reassurance to a dude with a strange name. It actually contains a significant message to us. It says to, that you should view life through the long-term lens of Jesus. You should view your life through the long-term lens of Jesus. You see, much like this telescope, God's purposes continue to expand. 
They may start out very shrunken and small in our view, but he continues to expand his purposes. And as we get further and further in his plans, we begin to perceive things more clearly. But we must continue in faith as we do this. And while we don't yet see the future as clearly as we would like to see it, God gives us enough to persevere in faith through the troubles and temptations and to keep going in our lives and put him first through all of it. And this prophecy makes two emphatic points that can help us to see our lives through the lens of Christ. And the first point is just this. Evil doesn't win. Evil doesn't win. Now this may seem simple, but it's really important because evil is a major threat to the Christian worldview. Not just in logical terms to thinking about like if, you know, if there's a good God, how can evil exist? But it's a major threat in practical terms in your life. Because evil isn't just an idea in your life. It's the pain you feel. It's the discouragement you sense. It's the problems you go through. And sometimes the problems of our lives feel so overwhelming that we may think, what's the use? Why should I bother living for God if it doesn't make me feel better or take away my troubles? Now, I'm not suggesting to you that God doesn't do some of these things, that there's not peace and joy in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit, but there are moments when we are tempted toward discouragement and despair. And this is a problem that God's people have been confronting for a long, long time. Consider the author of Psalm 73. He confessed this in verses 1 through 3. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The prophet Jeremiah asked God, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root and they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. And it's not just individuals that look like they get away with evil acts. We're not just talking about, you know, somebody getting mad at you in the drive-thru line or cutting you off in traffic and you saying, God, bring your judgment down. Nothing like that. We're talking about things that are even larger than the the, the normal inconveniences that we feel on a day-to-day basis. Yes, there are people with a wicked worldview who put money first, who love themselves more than others and more than God, who take advantage of people, governments who are cruel to their people, industries that demean humanity, corrupt politicians, societies that exalt sensuality and violence, and they often look not only like they're getting away with it, but actually like they're prospering. Maybe not even just prospering in spite of their evil, but it looks like they're winning because of their evil. They're prospering because of their evil. And when we see wicked people prospering, the temptation is to abandon God's ways and stop putting him first in favor of the worldview of our culture. Maybe I shouldn't put God first in my resources by giving sacrificially to missions. After all, what's in it for me if I do that? I see the nice cars that other people are driving. I bet I could afford one of those nicer cars if instead of giving sacrificially on a monthly basis, I use my resources for that, or maybe, maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's no big deal if I cheat on my spouse, right? My boss does it, she gets away with it, and she is successful. Maybe it's no big deal. And these are the people, not only in small, but in large terms, that our society presents to us as examples. Think about the examples of our culture for a moment, if you would. Think about celebrity. Celebrity 
We are, these are people who get famous for some usually insignificant talent in the grand scheme of things that they possess. I don't mean insignificant in the sense that God, you know, that God doesn't give you know, insignificant gifts, but in the terms of like the grand scheme of what's important in life, acting uh, for a, a secular movie is not like the highest priority in God's kingdom, I don't think. And so we, we exalt them for these talents and then we say we should also look to them as examples of morality. And you shouldn't do that. They are not examples of morality. Athletes are usually not examples of morality in our culture. And yet these are the people not only that prosper in spite of their wickedness, but that are presented as examples of morality in our culture. Or think about social media, especially young people. Think about the people who have become influencers on social media. They're not influencers because they're worth following. They're influencers because they exhibit the values of corporations who take advantage of them to make money off of you. And so in our Christian worldview, we have to begin to think about, hey, how do I think about these things? The wicked look like they're prospering. Does that mean that I ought to join them? It's true that happiness and fulfillment of sin is often short-lived, and we don't always see the consequences and the destruction that sin brings in others' lives because they hide it well. But listen, if we're real with ourselves, short is a relative term. And sometimes it really does look like the wicked are successful, not only in spite of, but because of their wickedness. That had to be an issue for Zerubbabel, the leader of this small group of people. There he was with God's people being called to sacrifice their resources and their time while they were in the midst of a drought, while they didn't have much. And not only that, commit to living a life of holiness before God, and he would bless them. But what if he didn't? And what about all the other nations around them that were really in control? I mean, Israel was under the thumb of the Persians at this time. They weren't worshiping God. They didn't bother with him. And they seemed to be doing pretty well. Why should Israel bother with God? What about all the other nations around Israel who were smaller but still opposed building the temple? They weren't worshiping Jesus. Should Israel really make God the priority in the midst of their suffering? What about them? Were they better off because they weren't having to prioritize a rebuilding project out of their need like Israel was? Notice how God called Zerubbabel to faith. He didn't say, look, I am currently bringing down these evil nations. Instead, he said this, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. And Zerubbabel's question, maybe your question sometimes has to be, how soon will about to happen? Zerubbabel and the people would need to trust God that he was going to deal with evil in his time and that their sacrifices and their perseverance wouldn't be for nothing. They needed to trust that he would deal with the wickedness in the world and that their efforts to honor God and obey him and worship him were worthwhile. And we need a similar faith, don't we? We're still required to trust Jesus that he's returning to judge the world and that our perseverance and that our faith in him are not in vain. And even in this passage, there's a movement in that direction that you may not see immediately. Verse 21 says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. Zerubbabel had heard this before. Haggai uh, said this at Haggai 2.6. says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. 
We learned a few weeks ago that this language was reminiscent of when God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And even the elements obeyed God. He opened the Red Sea and shook the nation of Egypt. So God here adds to this for Zerubbabel's encouragement. He says he's going to overthrow kingdoms and destroy the rule of nations. And this language was used elsewhere in the Bible to describe God's judgment against nations in order to make room for his people, Israel. For example, Deuteronomy 9.3 says, Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord promised you. God was driving out nations to make room for his nation, the nation who was going to be his people, who he saved, who were following him. So here, Haggai, in, in, in his prophecy, God is reassuring Zerubbabel that he's still doing that work. He hadn't abandoned that project because of Israel's unfaithfulness. He was still going to make room for God's people. Now, if we will telescope that idea out and we will see God's plan in the long term, it should bring encouragement to our lives. Since God used this imagery in the past to describe how he made room for Israel among the nations, perhaps it's not a stretch to suggest that he was again using that idea here in Haggai, not just for Israel, but about making room for a new people, the followers of Christ, because there would soon be more political and international upheaval. And Israel was not gonna rise to the top of that heap and be the nation that led all the other nations. Israel would not become the empire leader that they dreamed that they would one day become. Instead, Daniel had visions about empires replacing one another. The, the Persians being replaced by the Greeks, the Greeks being replaced by the Romans, and Israel all the while being persecuted and under the thumb of evil empires. But then Daniel saw at the end of this one, like a son of man, approaching the ancient of days and inheriting a throne from which he would reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And when Haggai is looking out through this telescopic lens of prophecy, that's what he's seeing. That's what the other prophets foresaw and foretold through the end of their telescope. But there are intermediate states, aren't there? There are states that come in between. They saw Jesus coming to rule and reign at the end of time. But there are all these little segments that happen in between now and then that get God's plan where it's going and get us to where God wants us to be. The coming of Christ and the spread of Christianity certainly resulted in an upheaval of nations that has produced a place for his chosen people, the church, not as a nation among other nations, but as a people, a spiritual kingdom among all the other peoples of the world, and the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against this spread of God's kingdom. The church continues to grow, and the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will take place on the day of the Lord when the coming of Christ occurs, and the kingdom of Jesus will supersede and swallow up all other kingdoms, and he will reign as king of kings and as lord of lords. Look at Revelation 17, 14. It says, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who with him are called chosen and faithful. And so for right now, 
We're in this time in the in-between where the prophets have looked ahead and seen Jesus is coming. And we even have more information than Haggai did. But we're somewhere in between. And in that in-between, God has allowed a lot of rulers and a lot of authorities to come and rule in this world. And by and large, they have abused their power, even opposing God and his people. Even now, we can see people who abuse their clout and they cause evil and sin. And not only are these physical rulers, but it's spiritual forces behind evil ideas of our culture. And they oppose God's people and they make evil the norm. When abortion or idolatry or genital mutilation or land grabs or genocide or the spread of perversion or greed are the policies of governments and the values expressed in a culture broadly, we know evil is at work. And it can seem so pervasive that we will wonder, how will we survive? And this is where the prophecy of Haggai is so important for you. Because many people, many Christians, look out on the evil of culture and they think to themselves, whether they think it you know, right up front in their brains or somewhere deep in the back of their brains, if you can't beat them, join them. And they compromise holiness because they think, well, I can live for Jesus sort of, kind of, in a religious, ritualistic sense, but I can really be a part of the world because they look like they're winning right now. You know what we call that in New England? Bandwagoners, right? When they only root for the Patriots during the good times, right? I've never rooted for the Patriots at all. I'm a Packers fan. But, you know, I'm, I'm with, you're in bad times right now. And so this is what you call people who are no longer there, right? They're bandwagoners. They jumped off somewhere. And Jesus does not tolerate this. You know, there are a lot of politicians who have used a phrase, I don't think they know what it means. They say that we're going to look back and see that we were on the right side of history. You know what, whether Republican or Democrat, I don't care. I think most people who have ever uttered those words as a politician are going to find themselves one day standing before Jesus and realizing they were on the wrong side of history. Because at the end of days when Jesus returns, the only place that will matter was, were you with him? Were you with him? Were you chosen? Were you called? Were you with him? Did you respond by faith to him? And so, Christian, I want to encourage you, do not have an if you can't beat them, join them attitude. Be encouraged. This isn't a recent problem for people. God has been addressing this all along. He's not left us without evidence that can inspire faith and hope. He shook the nations when Israel came out of Egypt, and the reverberations of that shaking still linger. There's still a nation, Israel. They're still being used by God in our world. The nations still shake as a result of that. He shook the nations. He literally shook the earth when Jesus died on the cross, and the sun became dark, and he shook it up. And then he sent out 12 apostles who shook the world and still shake the world for Jesus. He's fulfilling this prophecy, not only in front of our eyes, but through us. He's still shaking the nations as people from every tribe and every tongue come to faith in Jesus. Some of them because you gave, because you gave sacrificially, because you didn't grow discouraged and say, if you can't beat them, join them. I'm not giving them missions. I want something else. But you said, I'm giving because I see the vision of where God is taking us and he wins. And so I'm I'm going to give because I do want to be on the right side of history. I do want to be there when Jesus returns. And so you gave, and God shakes the nations because there are men and women from nations where it's illegal to be a Christian who are standing on faith in Jesus. 
who are proclaiming there's only one name to which I will bow and are honoring Jesus through persecution and trial. God's still shaking the nations. And there will come a day, church, when God will shake the nations to their core. The prophets knew it as the day of the Lord, the day when Jesus returns, when his authority is not only expressed in heaven and through his church, but it's expressed through judging the world and its evil and its wickedness. And he will show decisively, evil does not win. Jesus wins. But, but, right now what you're doing is you're looking through the telescope and you're saying, okay, it says Jesus wins, but I'm right here in the middle somewhere. And the question for you is this, will you persevere? Will you go through it? Will you walk through the difficulty? Will you persevere through the darkness, through the difficulties, through the discouragements of life, knowing Jesus wins? I'm holding on to Jesus. Will you view your life not through the system of this world and say, well, it looks like they're doing okay, they're doing well. I guess if you can't beat them, join them. But will you look through the lens of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ and say, at the end, he wins. Evil doesn't win. And so I want to be there. I want to be on the right side of history. Church, evil doesn't win. The night looks dark, the battle is long, but the battle has already been won. Don't give up victory for the lies of the enemy who wants to convince you to join the darkness. Death could not hold Jesus. He's gone through death and he punched a hole out the back and so he says to us with more force now than ever before, even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, I'm with you and I've brought a hole out the back so that you can see where you're going and you can persevere and you can go through it instead of succumbing to it. Don't stop giving. Don't stop your struggle against sin. Don't give up on prayer. Don't give up on God's word. Don't give up on the body of Christ. Don't give up the fight. Don't give in to temptation, nor discouragement, nor despair. Learn to see life through the long-term lens of Jesus. No, we're not at the end yet, but we're moving that direction, and God has given his word that demonstrates that while we may not be at the end of that telescope, that we're not at the beginning either. And we're moving the direction he wants us to go. The design that he's made for his story. If you give up, you will have quit just a little too soon. Because God is still saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. And when he does, on that day, the darkness of evil will melt away like shadows at the sunrise. And he will demonstrate that he has overcome. And that brings us to the second point of Haggai's prophecy that it makes that can help us to see our lives through Jesus. It's found in verse 23, and it says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I know that you could read this and think, Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, signet, none of that means anything to me. And you could think, this is a filler verse, this is a throwaway verse, has no meaning, has no application to you, but you'd be wrong. Start with what God called Zerubbabel. He called him my servant. And when this term is used in the Old Testament to refer to one person, it usually refers to one of two people. One was King David. It says in Psalm 78, 70, this is just one, for instance, where God called David his servant. It says, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. Later, this term would become part of a title, the servant of the Lord. 
And it was used of a figure in the prophecies, particularly of Isaiah, like the one that you're probably familiar with that says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Who was wounded? Who was crushed? Isaiah 53, 11 tells us, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Now I'm showing you this because when you're reading my servant in Haggai, he's not just saying servants in general, like any other servant of the Lord. He's using it as a title, like he used it for David, like he used it for the Messiah in Isaiah. We all recognize that Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, Jesus, and yet Haggai uses this term for Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. But he wasn't in the line who was going to succeed and take over the throne. And that's where the next important term comes in. God said he would make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. A signet ring was worn by kings and officials. It was a unique design used to stamp clay seals. So they'd take it and they'd push it into clay and it would become a stamp on something and it would seal and it would signify this is authentic. This really came from the king or from whatever authority it was coming from. And you could think of it like your signature or like when an official document is signed, you got the stamp of the notary public or something like that. But look at Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. This is the only other time signet is used in the Old Testament. It says this, as I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were like were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. This was God saying to one of the last kings of Judah, one of the heirs of David, it's over. Your reign is over. You are no longer chosen by me. And it was during Coniah or Jeconiah's reign that Israel was defeated and they were taken into exile. So it may have looked to many like because Israel broke their covenant with God, God was breaking his covenant with Israel. But then God told Zerubbabel that he would make him like a signet. God had discarded Jeconiah, his great-grandfather, or his grandfather, for his wickedness. But he was not discarding his covenant with David. Zerubbabel was a governor. He never became anything like a king. Never had an important status on, on the international stage. But look at Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 1.12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. That's right, Zerubbabel, Shealtiel, Signet, they're not incidentals in a wordy book. They're the story of God's grace to his people, seen through the telescope of the ages. God was giving Zerubbabel assurance that he wasn't just drifting on the waves of history, Though it was difficult to see, he was part of God's plan because God was bringing him into the line of kings and into the genealogy of the Messiah. That's what Haggai was saying to Zerubbabel. And I'm sure that some of us can relate to this idea of feeling like your life is just drifting on the sea, like it's merely a series of coincidences one after another And you're trying to string them together and figure out, man, what what does this even mean? How do I make sense of what's going on in my life? And so often, what we we do as, as human beings and even as believers in Jesus is when we take our eyes off of the long term lens of Jesus, we begin to equate our control with God's control. And we begin to think, if I'm not in control, that means God's not in control. 
If I don't feel like I can control these circumstances, that must mean God's no longer in control of these circumstances. But believer, Jesus' encouragement to you, the encouragement of the prophet Haggai to you, is that even when you feel like your life is tossed on the waves of coincidence in this world, God is still in control. And, and, that if you've put your faith in Christ, God has brought you into Jesus. And just like Zerubbabel is included in the Messiah's genealogy, think of how you've been included in Christ. If you've put your faith in Jesus, God has not only made you his son or daughter, he's brought you into his family. He's adopted you into his family. He's not only made you his son or daughter, he has put you in the genealogy of the Messiah and he's put you into the life of Christ. And he says, not only does your faith mean that, yeah, you believe in Jesus and you got this religious thing going on, it doesn't mean that, it means that you're in Jesus, that your life was with him and that when he died, you died. You died to that, that pain and that sin and the suffering. You died to a life of thinking, hey, this is just a bunch of coincidences strung together and it doesn't mean much, it doesn't amount to much. You died to that. And then God, through Jesus, punched a hole in the back of death and you walked through it with him. And so now the Bible says you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And so what Haggai encourages you with is this today. Stop looking at the circumstances of your life as if your life is defined by you and start looking through the lens of Jesus. Are you in Christ? Are you a believer in Jesus? Have you been brought in? Do you have the assurance of the Spirit in your life? Do you have that knowledge that I trusted Jesus? Christian, there are going to be moments of difficulty. There are going to be moments where you feel discouraged. There are going to be moments of despair where that heaviness lingers in your life and you will be tempted to think God's hand is not here I want you to pick up the lens of Jesus. I want you to look at his victory in the end. And I want you to say to yourself, remind yourself, I'm in him. I'm in him. And along the way somewhere, from the beginning where Haggai talked about what would happen back here, came Jesus in the middle. And Jesus suffered for you. And he died for you. He went through death for you and came out the other side. And yeah, you might be there with him right now. You might be walking through that valley of the shadow of death right now. But that means you're not alone. Because if Jesus did it, he's there with you. It doesn't mean when you're suffering, God has abandoned me. It means I'm going to hold on because I'm in Christ. He suffered. So my suffering doesn't mean he's abandoned me. It actually might mean I'm with him in the middle of it. And if I'll stay with him in the middle of it, I'll come out on the other side of it. And when I do, I'll be with him. I'll be like him. And he will have victory, not only in my life, but in the world. Look at your life through the lens of Jesus. If you look at your life merely through the circumstances and the evil, you will falter. But if you'll look at it through the lens of Christ, you will be victorious. Let me encourage you. You've been brought into Jesus. You need to see your life through that lens. You don't yet see what you will be, but you have this assurance that you'll be like him when he returns. And think of all that God has done to remind you and to convince you of this. This is so important. Think about all that God has done to convince you of this. This prophecy was written and translated so that you could hear and see God's purposes being fulfilled. He spoke to Zerubbabel, but he didn't just speak to Zerubbabel for Zerubbabel. 
He spoke to Zerubbabel for you and for your benefit. And hundreds of years later, the prophecy to Zerubbabel reached a new stage when Zerubbabel was included in the genealogy of the Messiah. So you'd say, ah, ah, he did it. He did what he said he would do. He said, I've cast off Jeconiah, but I'm going to pick up Zerubbabel and make him like a signet. How much more of a signet can you be to be in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? And so he's showing you, I did what I said I would do. And how much more has he done it then in that he sent his son Jesus to die for you and raised him from the dead and he's put his spirit in you. He has done all of these things to remind you, to convince you, to hold you, to keep you so that when you're going through it, you will say, I'm looking to Jesus, the author, the beginner, and the perfecter, the finisher of my faith. And he suffered in the middle. So while I suffer in the middle, I know he's with me, but I'm also looking at it and seeing there's joy coming. There's a time of rejoicing coming. God chose Zerubbabel and put him in Christ by faith. He does the same for you. He chose you in Christ. He put you in Christ. He can keep you in Christ. Don't lose sight of Jesus on your journey. Don't get so distracted and don't get so discouraged that you forget God's telescoping plan of history includes you as long as you remain in Christ. Don't start thinking that your life is coincidence. Don't rearrange your life according to the priorities and principles of the world. Set your worldview by Jesus. Trust him. Obey his teaching. Walk in the spirit. Don't be religious. Be in Christ. I'm going to ask Shana to come and as we prepare to close, we all have a worldview through which we interpret our purpose and the circumstances of our life. And if you believe the world, you'll think that life is just one coincidence after another or that your purpose is just to fulfill your own desires. But if you believe the word of God, if you believe Haggai, if you believe the prophecies of Jesus, you'll see that your life is part of God's plan and that while you may not know the details of that plan, God is bringing his plan to its conclusion, and those who are in Christ are included in that. They'll be on the right side of history. So the first question I want to ask in response this morning is this, are you in Christ? Have you put your faith in him so that your story gets pulled up into his? Would you close your eyes for just a minute? So often we hear people They'll talk about coming to faith in Christ as if what you're doing is you're asking Jesus to come into your story. Nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't come into your story. The God who created your story is much too large to fit into your story. The God who created your life, who gave you breath, who created the world, do you think he is so small that you can just add him to your story as if he's just an additional character in what you're doing with your life? No. He's not that small. And so oftentimes we hear the gospel preached as if you're adding something to your life. He's your co-pilot or something like that. That's blasphemous. It's wrong. It's evil. And it will send you to hell. What God has done is this. He wrote a new story, a completely new story. He wrote it through his son, Jesus. It's been his plan from the very beginning. He's always intended to do it. And what salvation is is not asking God to join your story. It's asking if God will let you join his. And he's already said yes through Jesus. He wants you to join his story. 
In fact, he sent his son Jesus so that you could die to your own story of pain and of grief and of sin and of rebellion against God, that you could die to all of that, confessing it, doing away with it, and that you could then be raised to new life in Jesus. You see, salvation is not inviting God into your story. It's asking God, will you bring me into your story and make me new? And so the Bible says that when you come into Christ, not when he comes into you, but when you come in Christ, you're a new creation. You've got a new story. This morning I want to ask you, do you have a new story? Is your faith in Christ? Have you believed in him? Not asking him to join what you're doing, but saying, God, I want to join your story. I can't be my own story maker. I can't be the author of my own life. My endings don't turn out well. I need your ending, Jesus. Because Jesus died, but was raised again to show you. Your ending can be eternal life. If you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus today, and you'd like to begin that, you'd like to ask him to include you in his story by confession and belief in Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something simple but bold, and I'm going to ask you to do it quickly. If you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, would you give me the privilege of praying with you by just lifting up your hand so that I can see it and pray with you? Is there anybody like that? You don't have a relationship with God through Jesus. You've never confessed faith in Christ You've never confessed your, your, your need for him and your desire to be a part of his story. If you don't have that, would you just lift up your hand quickly? I'm gonna wait for just a moment. It's not coincidence that you're here. If you're thinking this is just another one of those happy coincidences or unhappy coincidences of life, you're wrong. God sent his son Jesus and planned history around it. He has planned this moment for you that you might hear the gospel and be saved. If you don't have that knowledge of salvation, you'd like that today. You'd like to be in Christ. Just lift up your hand. Is there anybody like that? We're going to move to this next response. Christian, do you have a Christian worldview that sustains you? I'm not talking about some nice Christian sayings that you have on your wall or a t-shirt. I'm talking about a deep-seated trust that no matter what, no matter what you're going through, no matter what frustration, no matter what discouragement, no matter what pain you're facing, that God has brought you into Christ and you're not going to leave that place. He's brought you into Jesus, so you're going to stay there. Are you looking at yourself and your circumstances through the long-term lens of Jesus? Are you trying to discern his purposes and submit to his will? Are you trusting his control? Are you persevering through temptation and discouragement because you see, I'm in Christ, and when he returns, I'll be with him. Today I'm going to ask you to respond in this very simple way. But if you're, if you're feeling discouraged in your life, maybe there's a sense of anxiety or, or despair. Maybe you know you've taken your eyes off Jesus and you need to put him back there. Maybe you want to just refresh your worldview. There's a sense maybe today that you've said, said I've, I've been joining the world too much and I need to get my eyes back on Jesus. He's the definition of my life. He's the author of it. If that's you, you're sensing that discouragement, you're going through that despair, you're going through that trial, that trouble, and you need to get your eyes back onto Jesus. You need to look through the long-term lens of Jesus. Would you just respond very simply by standing this morning and I'll pray with you. Don't hesitate, don't wait. If that's you, you're sensing I need to be encouraged in Christ. I need to get my eyes back on Jesus. I've turned them away to other things or I'm just going through a season of discouragement and it's been difficult for me to hang on to trust Jesus in the middle of the circumstances of life. Would you just stand quickly so that I can pray, pray for you? Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, you see those who are struggling 
They're struggling through the difficulties of life. They're struggling through the moments of despair. Lord, they're struggling through discouragement. Lord, there are circumstances they don't know how to deal with. They don't know how to, how to move forward in these things. And Lord, the temptation comes to only see the present, to only see the problems, to only see what's going on around them currently. But I pray that today, Lord, your Holy Spirit would come and by your word would just close them up in your palm and remind them, I've got you as long as you remain in me. I'm holding you. I will comfort you. I will guide you. Lord, there are those who maybe they've taken their eyes off Jesus. They've decided that if I can't beat them, join them. They've allowed things in their lives that shouldn't be there. Lord, I pray that the conviction of your word today would be heavy in their lives and in their hearts. It would lead them to repentance and it would lead them to get their eyes back on Jesus. Lord, would you comfort them in the repentance that they need and set them on the right way again. And Lord, as a church, we ask that you would help us. Father, as a church, we go through times, ebbs and flows. We go through the good and the bad together. We pray that you would help us in the seasons of church life that we endure and that we go through to keep our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us not to get so caught up in the discouragement of the present that we fail to see the victory that rests in him and has already been won. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us today. Lift up those hearts that are downcast. Lift up the eyes that have fallen and put, put courage back in them this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for that, and we thank you for all that you've done to convince us that we can look ahead, keep our eyes on Jesus, and that you will take care of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. We believe for these things. Amen. Amen. We have prayer partners available today. If you'd like prayer for some reason, uh, any reason, you can come, and they'd be happy to pray with you. Otherwise, we'll see you again Wednesday as we gather again for prayer together as the body of Christ. Until then... Go in God's grace and in his peace.